welcome to episode 66 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. The subject of immense hope, hype and confusion, crypto has amassed countless headlines in recent years. As we release this episode, one of crypto's biggest names, Sam Bankman-Fried, is set to go on trial in New York, standing accused of having defrauded millions of investors at his FTX cryptocurrency exchange, stealing billions of dollars entrusted to his custody in the process. Yet, with cryptocurrencies, NFTs and the metaverse market crashing, the underlying blockchain technology is still promised to solve global development challenges and revolutionise every industry. Well, it's my real pleasure to be joined on the show this month by Peter Howson, author of the new book, Let Them Eat Crypto, the blockchain scam that's ruining the world. In the book, Peter cuts through the jargon and hyperbole to tell an alarming story of how right-wing libertarian crypto entrepreneurs, often aided by charities, politicians and philanthropists, have sought out and exploited conditions of poverty, oppression, corruption and conflict around the world in a new front of crypto-colonial extractivism. Far from banking the unbanked, saving the gorillas, or freeing people from oppressive governments, blockchain offers only false solutions, surveillance and high-tech snake oil. Well, Peter and I discuss all of this as well as the obscene environmental footprint of crypto and blockchain, why it endures in spite of a recent negative shift in public perception, and how we might go about getting rid of it. As always, podcast listeners can get 40% off the book on plutobooks.com using the coupon podcast at the checkout. But for now, let's dive right in. So here is Peter Housen on Radicals in Conversation. So Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's really exciting to be sitting down with you and talking about your new book, which is called Let Them Eat Crypto, The Blockchain Scam That Is Ruining the World. If you're listening straight after this episode's released, the book is not quite out yet, but it's coming out on the 20th of October, 2023. Of course, you can pre-order it already on plutobooks.com. So, Peter, as someone who works in the marketing department of a book publisher, I found the preface of the book really exciting because, you know, you lay out or you sort of tease a really interesting personal story, you know, in how it relates to this book's subject. You know, you were a crypto and blockchain sort of advocate or someone that was curious about these things. And now unequivocally, you're not. And you say, I think, to ignore anything that you might have written previously on this subject, you describe this book as kind of like your atonement. So could you start off by just telling our listeners a little bit about you, a little bit about your own backstory? Thanks, Chris. So I'm currently an assistant professor in international development at Northumbria University in Newcastle in the UK. So this journey to writing this book, it kicked off for me in around 2016. I'd been living in central Kalimantan, Indonesian Borneo for about four years, working in the forestry department. And I've been working in these projects that were trying to raise money to keep forests standing rather than having to cut them down for timber, which is the only way you can make money out of them, using a system of carbon credits. So um, there were these big international NGOs that were coming to Indonesia and they were essentially buying up the forests 
in order to make money out of them as carbon credits. And the research that I'd been doing was looking at the impact of this practice on indigenous people in Indonesia. And I could see very clearly that this wasn't working for local people. So all of the benefits were going to these big corporations, essentially, that were using carbon credits as pollution permits, enabling them to carry on business as usual, while the local people just lost their land. And then there was this one project that started selling carbon credits using a cryptocurrency. And at that point, I was like, I have no idea what a cryptocurrency is, but I'm going to have to get my head around it because my research is dependent on this. A few years later, it became my bread and butter, really. It's the core of my research because this practice spread and lots of other environment charities and companies that were trading in these carbon credits have started using this method so I was skeptical but I was also thinking that this could be a really good idea so all the benefits weren't just going to these big corporations they were going to local people but then it became obvious that actually what was being given to the local people wasn't cash it wasn't money that they could use to buy anything I mean most of these indigenous people they didn't have good internet or mobile phones or anything Mm. so they were essentially getting scammed and my perspective on this whole problem solving exercise completely changed at that point well we'll we'll definitely get more into the carbon credit side of things and i suppose the way that international development organizations ngos have sort of been lured in with crypto a bit later in the conversation. Let's go back, I guess, to some of the more fundamentals because like, the subtitle is The Blockchain Scam That's Ruining the World. Now, if any of our listeners are like me, in other words, completely ignorant about this subject until I started reading the book, um, I wasn't really sure what a blockchain actually is. Maybe listeners are more savvy, they already know. But let's lay some of the groundwork. So what is a blockchain? How does it relate to cryptocurrency and how are they different, I suppose? Yeah, so blockchain kicked off with the cryptocurrency Bitcoin in around 2008-2009. So we're talking the dawn of the global financial crisis. Mm. There's a group of activists called the cypherpunks. These guys are really annoyed, not necessarily at banks, because they like banks and free markets. They're free market fundamentalists. They're also known as the high-tech Hayekians. So they swallow all of the nonsense from Friedrich Hayek and this idea that, you know, any government intervention in markets is a slippery road to serfdom. So they come up with this platform that enables a peer-to-peer system of digital cash. Hmm. And you might be thinking, well, isn't all cash digital? these days like with covid with all you know the local banks are all closing and taking the atms away and things that's true but crypto bitcoin these are systems of digital cash that don't have any banks so there's no intermediaries at all that are keeping the books straight so this job of keeping the books is outsourced to anyone who wants to have the opportunity to win some new cryptocurrencies, some new Bitcoin. So cryptocurrencies are the incentive offered to people that want to keep the books using a blockchain. And the blockchain is a app-end-only distributed database. 
you don't need to think about this in really complex terms. You could just think about this in terms of like a normal spreadsheet database. Only the with a normal spreadsheet, you probably pay some subscription to Google or Microsoft or something to keep the books. With this, people compete for the opportunity to keep the book straight in return for a reward of new cryptocurrency. And that's essentially it. Hmm. Okay, so you've already kind of alluded to the fact that blockchain and, and Bitcoin, I guess, which is probably the cryptocurrency still with the most name recognition, they sort of emerged out of the financial crisis sort of period. So maybe, you know, you could say a little bit about whether it's sort of fair to say that's sort of what catalyzed them. And, you know, a secondary question to that, you know, when did interest in Bitcoin really take off? Was it at the point at which it emerged? Or again, was there something else that sort of propelled it into public consciousness and more value uh, in inverted commas? Bitcoin and blockchain became a thing at the dawn of the global financial crisis because there was an obvious appetite for something like this at that point but there's nothing new or innovative with this technology it had been around for decades Hmm. the simplified hashing algorithm which bitcoin uses that had been around since the 70s so block time stamping which is the way that you can connect a block of data with another one the way of maintaining the data structure without the need for intermediaries this has all been around for decades but the appetite for it came around 2008 2009 so this is like i guess you could think about it in milton friedman's terms the solutions that get picked up are the ones that are lying around during a real or imagined crisis but the cypherpunks have been around as themselves since the late 90s the terrorist attacks in the us it forced a lot of them to go underground like there wasn't any tolerance for people being anti-government or to be an underground activist organization like the cypherpunks were Hmm. so they went completely dark like the mailing list had very little activity it was only when there was a big financial crisis that the appetite for it grew exponentially the point at which interest in crypto rocketed was because of philanthropy really Julian Assange was one of the earliest cypherpunks and he obviously he oversaw a journalist organisation called WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks was in a pickle because they wanted to expose these horrendous acts. Collateral murder is the, is the famous one which shows the Reuters journalists being killed by the US military. And at that point, there was a lot of pressure that was put on payment providers, MasterCard, PayPal, Visa, by the US government to cut them off. There was an embargo on WikiLeaks. Julian Assange took this as the moment for Bitcoin to shine. So he put out this call for donations in Bitcoin. And then suddenly there was a value in it. It wasn't like before where you could only use Bitcoin to buy spongebob square pants stickers you know you'd need a thousand of them to buy one or something because it was just a sort of a thing for real hobbyists to play with at that moment there was actually like oh you can actually use it for something i mean everyone who was fundamental in the bitcoin movement was against julian assange and wikileaks actually making bitcoin into a thing they wanted to keep it as like this sort of little niche hobby group it was just for them but julian assange needed the cash 
to keep WikiLeaks going. And so he went ahead with it. Satoshi Nakamoto, in his last message on the uh, cypherpunk message board, was, you know, this is going to kick the hornet's nest. Don't do it. But he went ahead and did it anyway. And it's been growing, not in a, a straight trajectory, but in a kind of very turbulent up and down trajectory. Mm. Yeah, I mean, talking about the, the turbulence there, it seems like the volatility of cryptocurrencies is sort of one of its defining markers. And I mean, one thing that comes through in the book is that crypto is almost universally not used as a currency. You know, it doesn't facilitate the exchange of goods and services, really. Mainly, it's now used as uh, an investment. You know, it's speculative. Do you think the volatility of crypto is like one of the reasons why it doesn't ever seem to actually be used as a currency? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not used as a currency for lots of reasons. So it's failed to be like cash because, I mean, before we had this conversation, I had to check, you know, has it gone up 10% or has it dropped 50%, you know, and it does drop by 50% a couple of times a year. So you can't price any goods and services in Bitcoin because like, how would you ever plan for the day? You know, you can't save with it. So it's not a store of value. You know, you're better off turning all of your money into Amazon gift vouchers, really, if you wanted to really subvert the traditional monetary system. It can't scale either. So, I mean, if you compare Bitcoin to Visa, Visa just being one payment intermediary, so Visa can handle thousands of transactions per second. And that's just one payment provider. Thousands. We're talking 2,000 currently. Mm. Bitcoin can only ever do seven, seven transactions per second. So, I mean, when people say, oh, it'll be the future money system or take over all other currencies globally, seven transactions per second, you know, we're talking about a tiny little village mm. that would probably make that, that amount of transactions. So it can't scale and it's far too volatile. But that volatility is good for speculators, especially what we call the whales. So the people who own a large percentage of these cryptocurrency supplies, because they can easily use kind of automated trading algorithms to take advantage of that volatility. So, you know, they can do high frequency trading and make lots of money. And the regular retail investor will never be able to keep up with them on that. They'll always lose to the, the power of these big whales and their automated trading platforms. That's why you can't you can't use this money. I mean, the other thing is, it's just incredibly inefficient. Bitcoin specifically is probably the most purposefully polluting innovation in human history. I mean, because it deliberately wastes resources. That's where it gets its value from. It comes from the proof of waste. Yeah. I mean, they call it proof of work, but the work is wasting energy. That's how they price it. So last year... Bitcoin was using 200 terawatt hours of electricity to keep this network going. Yeah. That's the same amount of energy used by Argentina. You know, so a large developed country's worth of electricity is being used by a cryptocurrency that nobody uses, unless it's for sort of nefarious purposes, for ransomware attacks and you know, money laundering and sanctions evasions and, and things like that. Otherwise, people are just using it because they're speculating for some future price increase so they're not using it for any reason so huge environmental headache with this Thirty-seven thousand tons of e-waste comes from all the equipment 
that these Bitcoin miners, we call them, this e-waste is all being cooled by what we call forever chemicals. So they're linked to sort of higher incidence of cancer. They're not properly disposed of. They're generally shipped to the global south. So it's uh, again, it's the poorest people in the world that are having to take on the cost of all of this. So yeah, massively inefficient, massively volatile, doesn't work as cash, doesn't work as a store of value. That's what makes blockchain and cryptocurrencies possibly the biggest scam in human history. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in the book that's just draw-dropping, like the idea that creating Bitcoin, I suppose it's kind of like creating the scarcity that might allow it to have value, requires this sort of deliberately energy, sort of intensive, deliberately wasteful proof-of-work process. It's just absurd. And then the fact that the Bitcoin mining technology, the actual machines that have been created specifically to do this task, have no secondary application and they just end up on a landfill most of which never even successfully generate any Bitcoin for the miner. Yeah, so, I mean, with Bitcoin miners, it's not like how it's commonly portrayed by the media. So when people say, well, what is Bitcoin mining? You'll often hear, well, it's computers that are solving complex maths puzzles in exchange for a reward. But that is a lie. They're not solving any problem. They're simply playing guess the number. It's a long string of ones and zeros and each machine guesses at this string of ones and zeros and the correct answer gets the the Bitcoin. And if you've only got one or two people that are playing guess the number, the string of ones and zeros is made so that one machine has to spend 10 minutes in guessing the right number. If you have millions of these computers playing guess the number, then the number becomes much more difficult. And so even though the machines they're using is getting more and more efficient because you have to have more and more efficient machines in order to stand any chance of winning, there's so many new people are constantly entering the competition that it becomes an arms race. And this is why you get such a high turnover of e-waste because the machines has to continually be swapped for newer machines. So let's, I guess, turn to some of the concrete examples in the book of like how some of this waste creation and the environmental like footprint, all of that plays out. You talk about the case of Texas in the book as an example of why Bitcoin miners moving to your area is just really bad news. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what the situation has been in Texas as a you know interesting case study? And then maybe a little bit more about some of the ways in which Bitcoin, you know, props up the fossil fuel industry or delays you know the shift to renewable energy and that kind of thing yeah so there is this myth well there's lots of myths in bitcoin crypto economy um probably the biggest myth is that this decentralized technology is decentralized it's actually incredibly centralized you have these sort of big whale investors that own the majority of the token holdings on almost every cryptocurrency you have these mining communities that tend to set up in places where energy is very cheap and there's corrupt governments that won't intervene in that energy being stolen from a grid sometimes for free. This is why pre-2021, the majority of Bitcoin miners were located in China in two regions. So you had some in the southeast of China where they had an oversupply of renewables from hydropower plants. 
But when the dry season started, there wasn't a surplus. So the, the, all of these machines had to be moved into the north of China, where there's lots of cheap coal. Most miners would always use coal over renewables because renewables, they don't work all the time. There's not a continual supply. Unlike coal, if you base yourself up in the vast northern territories of China, there's a ready supply of coal that you can just pre-purchase it for five-year periods. So you just use it. Prices are stable and they like that. Solar power doesn't work at night. Hydropower only works when it's been raining a lot. The machines are continually losing value because they become obsolete because more efficient machines come on the market. So they have to use these machines 24-7 in order to make a profit. What happened was is that there was so much corruption and energy wastage in China. The Chinese government realised that they couldn't meet any of their climate change objectives of being uh, net zero by uh, I think it was 2035, with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in tow. So although China had always had a hard line against cryptocurrency and Bitcoin use in the country, they really started to crack down a couple of years ago. And at that point, when people were being threatened by the Chinese Communist Party, these Bitcoin miners had two options. They could either sell all of their Bitcoin mining machines very cheap many did do this but the ones that could leave the country put all of their mining machines on shipping containers and got them over the border into eastern europe and set up shop there but then you had places like texas and texas has always been this lone star state where they have very minimal regulation texas is a weird place because in the u.s they've got these two massive interconnected grids They've got the eastern grid and the western grid. And then you've got the Texas grid, which is just all on its own. Because Texas is a lone star state, it's, you know, it's hardcore free market, neoliberalism. They didn't want to connect to either the state. They wanted this kind of market-driven approach, which was all on its own. They produce a lot of electricity from oil in Texas. So loads of these Chinese miners just moved over to Texas. I mean, it's definitely where the most amount of Bitcoin money is taking place in the US. And the US is now taken over China as being the country that produces the most amount of Bitcoins. So, I mean, this might sound like good news to people in Texas, but it really isn't. So you may remember in 2021, they had a a big polar vortex storm that would normally sit in the kind of northern states in um, in the US but it was some sort of weather anomaly that actually uh, caused the temperature to drop significantly in Texas and the southern states. The grid was meant to have been replaced in the year 2000 but it never was it was just patched together because there was no state investment in the infrastructure. There was just this reliance on the private sector, which never stepped up to fix the grid. So the grid went down, the renewables all stopped. There was 700 people died, froze to death. Like some of them died of thirst in their own homes because they couldn't melt any of the ice to drink. Like it was incredibly sad. Um, And this is around the time when lots of Bitcoiners are coming to Texas, you know, hoping to swallow up some of this surplus energy that Texas sometimes has. 
And then the following year, there was this incredible drought. Farmers weren't planting fields because there wasn't enough water. But because the government are so ideologically committed to allowing Bitcoin in as um, a way to balance the electricity grid in Texas, they've set up this voluntary response system so that ERCOT, who is the organisation that manages the grid in Texas, they ask Bitcoin miners voluntarily to switch off their machines during peak demand periods. They don't have to, but if they do, then they're awarded with energy credits that they can use later on. With some big Bitcoin outfits in Texas, 25% of their profits came from acquiring these um, energy credits from ERCOT. So they're getting given money from the bill payers in Texas for doing nothing. They are parasites on the grid. This is happening in wherever you find Bitcoin miners going. The way that I describe it is... When I was a kid, we had these plaque disclosing tablets that we were given and you rinse them around your mouth. Yeah, turn your teeth blue. Yeah, that's the, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah, and I then, remember them. Yeah, and, it's a, and these sort of show where the sort of plaque is in your mouth. And I think that that's what Bitcoin does. Like it circulates around the global energy networks and then it sticks in dark clumps to areas where there's corrupt governments. So Texas is obviously where they're going in the U.S., We'll also find this happening in um, a place called Transnistria, which was a breakaway region from Moldova. And this is a, a part of the world which is maintains political allegiances to Russia, but is this kind of appendage to Moldova. But Moldovans are required to buy their energy from Transnistria because that's where all the power plants are. And so you've got loads of Bitcoin miners that have gone there because they realise they can get super cheap energy, there's corrupt governments, there's conflict going on, and this is ideal for Bitcoin miners. This is what they look for. So this is why, if you ever want to see where conflict is about to kick off, honestly, Bitcoin is a great marker for that. Like in Kazakhstan, they had this probably what could be considered the first popular uprising against Bitcoin. The government there was inviting loads of Bitcoin miners in to use the cheap coal that they had in Kazakhstan and get lots of money. There was this issue with liquid natural gas that was happening at the same time. So there was like energy shortages. And yet the Kazakhstan government was selling, you know, cheap coal to Bitcoiners and taking all the money for themselves. There was this big uprising. The Russians came in, executed lots of people and arrested loads of others. And there you are, you know, Bitcoin was a great marker to see that this turbulence was gonna was gonna happen and it's the same in central african republic and virunga national park and you can just see wherever you'll find bitcoin you'll find these problems mm, yeah absolutely one last thing there's a lot more to say about the kind of environmental catastrophe of crypto and blockchain but you mentioned early on i think carbon credits and carbon offset schemes and it seems that like they were already kind of illusory as a sort of solution to the climate crisis, but adding blockchain into the equation is just even more so. Could we just like speak about that a little bit? Because I guess it also touches on the way in which the UN and the World Bank and like a lot of these big sort of agencies have been taken in by blockchain and crypto. 
yeah, could you speak a little bit about carbon credits and, and how they've been affected by blockchain? Yeah, so um, back in the late 80s, the big bogeyman for the world was the holding the ozone layer and obviously trying to bring all countries together to come up with a solution for that involved a rapid phase out of chlorinated fluorocarbons. This went very well. It was a, a kind of like command and control type form of regulation. It was saying that like laws are going to come in that is going to phase out and eventually ban the use of these chemicals. And it worked. And for this reason, we can go outside without fear of our skin blistering off and, you know, horrible death. Shortly after that, carbon became the big boogeyman, carbon dioxide. Governments all around the world probably were thinking at that point, well, we've got precedent for this from the Montreal Convention. So we can come together and we could slowly phase out carbon dioxide emissions so that we have a, a kind of net zero, I guess, within a certain time scale. But a guy called Richard Sandor, he came along, came to the table and suggested that instead of having this command and control system like we had in Montreal, let's have a market-based system so that everyone's allocated a quota of carbon and they can sell parts of their quota that they haven't used to other countries so you get this market and then gradually you can increase the cost of these carbon credits and then eventually you would get this phase out. Obviously it doesn't work so carbon emissions haven't been as high as they are today in the last 50 million years. This isn't working but organisations, institutions like the UN and the World Bank aren't saying right we need to come up with a different approach. They're simply saying well we've only got market mechanisms, that's it. So how do we make market mechanisms work? And then blockchain advocates came along and said, well, we've got a fix that's probably worth a go that can make these market-based mechanisms work. So a few of these projects started minting carbon credits as NFTs. And this is just absolutely bizarre, obviously, but the reason it's bizarre is because when you buy a carbon credit, it's that carbon credit is retired from a registry so that it can't be reused as a pollution permit. But the way NFTs work is that they are these immutable entries on a blockchain that exists, you know, for as long as the Internet does. That's the, whole, that's the point. So people are minting these carbon credits as NFTs and then keeping them as a speculative assets and then buying and selling them in order to make the price of them go up. That doesn't work, obviously, for carbon credits. You can't apply the two together. But that's not the point. The point isn't that they actually fix the problem. The point is, is that you can get rich from them. So the solution is entirely divorced from the problem. The World Bank have put together this climate warehouse, which uses a blockchain called Chia. And Chia is a cryptocurrency that instead of using these mining machines like Bitcoin uses, it uses proof of space and time. That's what it's called, POST. So anyone can be a Chia miner. All they have to do is buy loads of hard drives and then download these lottery tickets that this Chia system automatically issues. And then the winner of the lottery wins the, the Chia. In the process of doing that, they're also validating transactions that are occurring on this network. Um, the only problem is, is that this is just burning through lots of hard drives. 
So it has exactly the same consequence as Bitcoin miners in terms of it's producing a hell of a lot of e-waste, which you're just throwing away in order to create these cryptocurrency tokens that are just completely divorced from any kind of material reality. But this, this is the case with all crypto fixes. So blockchain advocates, they encounter a problem and propose a kind of blockchain solution to it. But they instead of actually addressing and fixing that problem, they just come up with a whole host of new problems and never actually come up with a fix. Yeah, so there is this whole chapter in the book, which is crypto colonists, I think. And it looks at how crypto is... Um, it courts various kind of corrupt governments, autocratic regimes, tax havens around the world, and that local populations rarely seem to benefit. You kind of already alluded to that in the, the case of like Texas. But yeah, you know, crypto lives in the realm of fantasy. But as you say, it's kind of very clear that the pursuit of this fantasy has catastrophic real world consequences for huge numbers of people. So could you talk a little bit about this paradigm of crypto within the rubric of colonialism and give us some examples of the ways in which we've seen that around the world. With these crypto projects, a lot of them are drawn, as I say, to places that have these corrupt governments. They're in war zones, places that are facing financial debt crises. This is where Bitcoiners and crypto advocates tend to go. There is this mentality of kind of um, terra nullius w within these communities so they kind of see crypto as the light essentially and that they it's almost a religious fervor that these communities have in that they think that they need to go to poor countries in the global south and save them from their corrupt governments and when i say corrupt governments i mean any kind of government they see as corruption and bring freedom and light with these cryptocurrency projects that they have. All of these projects flock to places with nice beaches and cheap cocktails, which is convenient for them. So Puerto Rico, for example, has become a hub. In Puerto Rico, there were these big hurricanes, Hurricane Maria in 2017. The US government, they made Puerto Rico what they call a zone of opportunity. And they brought in Act 22, which was this promoting the relocation of investors to Puerto Rico Act as a way of kind of getting Puerto Rico back on its feet after these hurricanes. It was primarily geared towards crypto projects, blockchain initiatives to try and get them to come in. These guys brought up all of these prime beachfront properties, turned them into gated communities, private enclaves priced out all the locals and what we see in Puerto Rico now is that 84,000 Puerto Ricans are migrating to the US every single year because they're being priced out by these people from the US coming in taking advantage of the tax breaks that they get. One of the first crypto disciples to move to Puerto Rico is this guy called Brock Pierce. Brock Pierce was a child Disney actor. He was in uh, The Mighty Ducks. He brought loads of people down to Puerto Rico with him. You know, he, he makes the point that, like, if you want to be a crypto investor and you're American, you have to renounce your passport if, if, you, if you want to make that your living. Because if you're a U.S. tax resident, you have to pay tax on every single transaction or every kind of set of trade that you make in cryptocurrency. So 
it really makes sense for crypto people to, in America to move to Puerto Rico because they don't have to give back their passport. They can carry on being US citizens and enjoy the benefits of that, but they can also be um, tax-free living in Puerto Rico. So you get all the worst kind of scumbags that have come down to Puerto Rico. So, you know, there's stories in the book of Logan Paul driving his golf cart along a beach full of baby turtles um, you know, and then tweeting about how much fun he was having doing it. And there's, you know, people that have gone there and just, you know, in the middle of a round of golf, you know, shoot a dog that happened to be barking when they're trying to take a, a shot. So these, you know, these people are not, not nice people. But you also have to look at the history of Puerto Rico, that it has been this colonised country that has been oppressed by the US. Um, it was used as a place to experiment with eugenics programmes. People who were poor after having their land taken off them were sterilised so they couldn't have any more kids. Um, it's a tragic story anyway. And then you have this other new phase of colonialism that is taking place with crypto and you know Puerto Rico isn't a one-off there's a lot of countries these days that are trying to use golden passports as a way of getting crypto criminals to come to their country with all of their ill-gotten gains and bring new capital to these countries so Vanuatu is one of these countries that had these passports that gave them EU visa-free access they started selling these golden passports to crypto criminals. The EU put their foot down and have, you know, cancelled this visa waiving agreement. So obviously local Vanuatu people are annoyed because, you know, the value of their passport is suddenly much lower. But, you know, essentially because of this kind of crypto strategy that the government has across the Pacific, we see examples of this. I think it'd be good to just go back briefly to like why crypto is basically just a scam, why it's so fraudulent, and then sort of looking into why people or if people are still falling for it. I mean, as I said before we started recording, I, I never really understood crypto before, but it seems like there has also been, you know, a lack of a proper grasp amongst people actually investing in it as to what it actually is, what it does, how it works. So yeah, let's talk a bit about the fact that crypto is a scam. Why is that the case? How is that the case? Yeah, so I think there's two parts to this. It's commonly understood now that crypto is a giant scam. I mean, when, when I first started writing this book, I thought, well, I'm going to have to make this case. I'm going to have to make this very obvious. And then suddenly it just became obvious. Like it was just in the news. I think the actual, the mood music has changed. And when people think about crypto, they do think about scams. They don't think how it used to be, but this was an exciting market mania. I blame the press for that. Not necessarily in the book, but I think generally this is my feeling. I, I was interviewed by the Daily Mail a couple of years ago and they asked me to comment on this NFT project and they asked me, you know, how much it was going to sell for and things like that. And, and I said, you know, this is all wash traded, this collection that you're talking about, like probably no one's going to buy these assets. Could you explain wash trading actually as a concept? Because it's pretty key, I suppose. Wash trading is when the buyer and the seller of any asset are on both sides of the trade. If someone were to download this podcast that we're doing and mint it into an NFT, <laughs> you know, they don't own this podcast. This is what they do. 
they do weird things like this. Like they would then say, oh, well, I own that podcast now because it's an NFT. And, and even though it's all you're, you're buying is an entry into a database that has some association with this podcast. Um, mm. In order for people to believe that this has value, they have to build up a price history, an upward trajectory, essentially. So what they do is they'll just create this new wallet address and then they'll buy the asset from themselves using this different wallet address. And then they'll create another one and buy the asset again off themselves. And then they'll keep doing that. So you eventually you have this quick upward price movement. Lots of people look at this upward price movement and they go, wow, this is crazy. Like, I want some of this, you know, fear of missing out type thing. So they buy in. Mm. And as soon as like this new entrant has come in and bought the asset, obviously the price movement stops straight away and that person is left with uh, nothing. But it's not just NFTs that are doing this. It's every cryptocurrency. It's just who's going to jump before the big um, downside loss kicks in. So it's a scam in that respect. But I think in with the book, this became more and more obvious. So I, I was very grateful for that because it was like, oh, well, then that gives me the word count to actually dedicate to some of the stories that I actually want to tell rather than having to sort of convince people that this isn't a legitimate form of market action. But the Daily Mail, they didn't print anything that I wanted to say about this being market manipulation that was causing these upward price movements. Because if they were to say that, they would have to accuse someone of foul play. And obviously then you've got defamation issues and you've got lawsuits and things that the the journalist just wanted to make a fun story about how stupid people are, you know, about this sort of market mania thing, like Teletubby dolls and tulip bulbs and things like that. You know, this is another one of them, isn't it? But it's actually, well, no, it isn't just market mania this is criminal offenses that are happening that are causing these price movements and that wasn't really the case with teletubby dolls and the south sea bubble and tulip mania it was just people being in this popular delusion and the man has the crowds type thing this isn't just a market mania this is actually fraudulent people that are trying to suggest that there's some innovation going on here and that is the reason why these assets have value but what i'm saying is that actually it's an illusion of innovation there is no innovation happening here there's nothing of any value here so i liken blockchain technology as a whole to the mechanical turk so in 1769 there's this slovakian inventor called wolfgang von kempelen and he creates something similar what he calls the chess playing Turk. So Ken Pellen, he goes to see a show that's being put on at some palace in Austria. And it's this illusionist that's doing something clever with magnets. And then Ken Pellen, because he's like a amateur industrialist, he's a bit handy in the shed and he makes these sort of inventions and things. He immediately clocks, nah, this is magnets. There's nothing clever here. So he puts his hand on and goes, magnets, you know, and then that's it, ruins the fun. And then he puts his hand up and says, I can do much better than this. So he goes away, goes to his shed, comes back a few months later with this automaton, which is this basically head and torso that's dressed as an Ottoman magician. It's got a long pipe and the automaton is sat in front of a cabinet 
with a chessboard on the top. Ken Pelin, he introduces his automaton to the court and says, right, this automaton is going to beat any of you at chess. So someone comes up, they open all the doors of the chest and they can just see these spinning cogs and things, clockwork thing. And then sure enough, when they sit down at the automaton, it starts moving its hand. You know, everyone's amazed. The smoke is rising from its pipe and the automaton beats everyone at chess. And everyone is amazed by this. And Ken Pelin takes this automaton on a sellout tour around all the theatres of Europe. It beats Napoleon Bonaparte. It beats Frederick the Great of Prussia. It beats Benjamin Franklin. Everyone's just like, obviously, this is some very clever thing at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. You know, it's crazy what people can do these days with automation. But it's only, you know, decades later that Edgar Allan Poe goes to one of these shows and he realises that this is a scam. He guesses that there's someone inside the cabinet that's pulling all the levers. And sure enough, he was right. You know, this wasn't innovation. This is a scam. This is what blockchain is. It's the illusion of something novel and innovative and automated and decentralised when all of those things are a lie. When most people think about crypto, they think of this as a network scam. That is that there is lots of people coming to an online casino where everyone's trying to scam each other. You know, there's no clear distinction between a victim and a perpetrator because the only difference being who gets the winnings at the end of the day. And that's what makes crypto a network scam. You know, if you lose money, well, you would have taken someone else's money. It's because it's a zero-sum game, you know. When you hear people in the pub say, I made lots of money on Dogecoin, you know, ask them where that money came from. It came from someone else who lost. So that's the network scam aspect of it. Crypto isn't just like that, though. The victims aren't just the people in the casino that are losing. The victims are the people in the Global South that have these projects come and take all of their cheap energy because of their corrupt governments that take advantage of the conflict that's been raging in their country. So it isn't just a network scam. It's a scam that has huge environmental and social consequences for the rest of us that don't want anything to do with crypto. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it does seem to function on several levels. I mean, but it's interesting as well, like you give examples in the book, I think, just speaking to why, how kind of transparently scammy-docious to use a word um it seems to be because like i think it's a uh, useless ethereum token and fomo coin two examples that are quite transparent about their lack of intrinsic value i think one of them maybe fomo coin recognized that people just want to sort of speculate look at a value chart for a little bit and then sell off what they sort of put in which i guess is quite interesting because it speaks maybe to the psychology of people that are drawn to sort of speculating it feels very much like people might be addicted to this in the way that they are addicted to online gambling i think you even mentioned that there have been some sort of like gambling clinics set up for people addicted to making sort of crypto investments do you think that's part of why it still hasn't completely gone away you know or hasn't died the death that it should have done yeah so i mean there is these blatantly scammy docious projects like FOMO coin and useless Ethereum token that have made the point that like it's all a scam 
and these are really old projects. This was 2017, this project sprung up. And yet it was after 2017. It was actually in 2020, 2021 that the price rocketed properly. This is when the world had already been shown that this is just an absolute scam. But just going back to the automaton thing, I mean, the, the reason that I thought this was such a good analogy to explain the market mania around crypto and the scamidocious nature of it is because the reason that Ken Pellen's chess playing Turk was believed was because it was in this moment when people were smashing up the looms because they were scared of, you know, the effect that these industrialists are having on their livelihoods potentially by bringing in these autonomous systems. So they were scared that this was happening right now. They were put off by the fact that there were these very complicated cogs and gears in front of them that were tick-tocking around. So people believed it for that reason. And when you look at projects, for example, like WorldCoin, and this is um, Sam Altman's Universal Basic Income cryptocurrency, which is issued to people who... Um, donate their biometrics to WorldCoin so they can use it for purposes that haven't be f been fully uh, transparent about. But you have to stare into this basketball-sized orb while it takes photos of your face and your body and your irises and then the iris scan is used as your wallet address. And obviously th this is the same thing as Ken Pellin's chess playing Turk. This is like, it, all it is is a camera. It's just a camera inside this shiny metal strange magical orb you know but that's the thing it's just all of the fraudulent men inside the machine are hidden behind either a cabinet or a shiny metal orb you know that's how crypto works the reason that it has continued for much longer than it deserves like after 2017 the whole thing should have collapsed when it became obvious and actually like the regulators in the US stepped in and they actually said that crypto assets need to register with the Securities and Exchange Commission as securities and a lot of crypto projects they were like oh we have to limit who we can sell to so the retail market for them shrunk a lot and then you had this crypto winter that happened after 2017. So you might remember that massive high of Bitcoin. It went to like £17,000 or something. Massively crashed and then brought the whole market with it. Around that period, we had this resurgence in very ideologically committed blockchain enthusiasts that actually said, right, we're going to have to go back to the drawing board, come up with a really coherent marketing story that's going to pick crypto back up again and this is where web3 was born this idea that came from Andreessen Horowitz and the people behind Ethereum they came along with this idea of web3 so they were trying to say that actually crypto and blockchain is going to be the next iteration of the internet they managed to get the ear of the United Nations and the World Bank the World Economic Forum these big global institutions to actually back this idea that web3 was going to be really important for the global economy and especially around you know when everyone's distracted because of covid and lockdowns and things like that and there is this real appetite for something that's going to get the economy going again after these lockdowns and and crypto offered that opportunity i think for a lot of policymakers it was because you had these legitimate, the most legitimate people. So all the banks are on board as well. Everyone's on board 
as this. Our governments are still on board. So obviously, as you know, normal people, we're going to say, oh, well, this is a legitimate part of the economy then. I'll invest in this. So this is the major thing, the reason that crypto enjoys this popular resurgence and um, it takes off far higher than it had done in the past because it now had this air of legitimacy that comes from these big financial institutions that back it. Not only that, but you also have, I think, a lot of um, aid washing that's going on as well and a lot of left washing. So there's this idea that actually crypto isn't just a speculative asset anymore, that it can actually do the, all these wonderful things for human development more broadly. Charities are jumping on board and they're saying that actually, you know, crypto donations offer donors the opportunity to track how their money is being spent by the organisation. So whereas in the past, it was like this deliberately opaque business model that charities adopted for good reasons, because obviously, if you and I donate to some disaster appeal, you know, we have to trust that these people that are working on the ground to make people's lives tolerable, know what they're doing. And we don't. That's the point. Like we give money to experts because they are the experts. But crypto communities are very critical of people who define themselves as experts. They're, they are the experts. They're in the best place to know what's best for these people. Most of the time for them, it's all people really need is more crypto. But charities are buying into it, this opportunity. So you have kind of Save the Children, Oxfam, the World Wildlife Fund. All of these massive charities start doing these NFT fundraising campaigns and coming up with these blockchain-based giving strategies. And this not only is having adverse impacts for the sector generally, charities and their ability to act more dynamically so they, they don't, they're not just beholden to the donor and their interests, you know, to this little boy in his basement and what he wants the money to be spent on, that they actually... It takes power away from those experts that actually know what needs to be done on the ground. These charities are, are then giving this space much more legitimacy as well mm. and almost holding it captive. It's like saying to regulators, if you do something about crypto, you're going to affect the extent to which we can do our job helping people in poor countries. So it makes it difficult for regulators to step in at that point as well. There's been this negative shift more recently amongst popular public perception of crypto. Has that sort of filtered through to the charity and NGO sector as well? No, I, th I think there's still plenty of uh, charities that don't want to hold their hands up and say we were wrong. But equally, there are lots of charities that have done just that. I mean, Greenpeace were the biggest ones, really, that have put their hands up and said this was counterproductive to the world that we want to make. And especially, you know, environmental charities, it's absurd to start fundraising using Bitcoin. Every Bitcoin transaction is equivalent to throwing away two iPads worth of e-waste. It's the same amount of energy as a, a UK house uses in three months. You've just wasted just sending one Bitcoin donation to Greenpeace. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And Greenpeace were very quick to say, yeah, we were wrong. And they've even come up with... Um, it's a campaign called Change the Code, Not the Climate. 
which is trying to get Bitcoiners to rethink the very energy intensive mining process that the network relies upon and move to something which is more energy efficient. So, I mean, there's some charities that have realised how wrong they were. But I mean, some Oxfam as well. I think Oxfam have, have really had to go through a period of self-reflection. I mean, they had to anyway. Yeah. Oxfam already had their budgets cut because of various scandals. So the UK government banned them from applying for certain pots because of the sex scandals that were happening in disaster zones where Oxfam was working. And I think to some extent Oxfam saw blockchain as a way of kind of bringing transparency to their operation. They bought into this idea that if you have a, a transparent blockchain database where everyone can see how we're spending our money, that would fix our image problem. But in reality, you know, what's happened is it's made that a lot worse. The World Wildlife Fund, they had a, a few scandals as well. So there was in their protected areas where they were operating, there was the security personnel were being accused of rape and murder of local indigenous people. And yeah, they, there was a big BuzzFeed investigation of WWF. And again, they had the same idea, I think, as, as Oxfam, whereas, you know, we can use this technology to show that we're transparent. And they came up with this NFT, it was called um, Tokens for Nature, where they would sell NFTs, which is just completely, they're worthless now, all of them. I think that actually they, they closed down the sale of those NFTs the same day that they opened because of the just every... One of their supporters just said, what the hell are you doing? Like, this is just the most scammy way that you can operate. So there are charities rethinking this, but there's still this. But Mercy Corps is one that's just really hard line. They've um, always taken money from big Silicon Valley donors that encourage them to accept donations in cryptocurrency. So there, there are some charities that are just really ideologically committed to this. And it's interesting, sort of in the, in the latter stages of the book, you talk about how, in spite of the sort of negative shift in popular public perception, you still have key figures in the UK government, the, the Conservative Party, including the disgraced Matt Hancock, but also Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, you know, current prime minister, big advocates of crypto. And then again, you kind of talk about what's sort of potentially on the horizon. And there's, you know, I'm loath to throw in another acronym, but the, you talk about CBDCs as potentially giving new life to crypto, something that we've got to be sort of aware of. And what are they and why might that prompt renewed interest at this point? Yeah, so I think most of the book is kind of highlighting the fact that this is a very predatory ecosystem that preys upon the poorest in society. Most of the victims are in the global south, but there's examples from all around the world where poor people have been screwed over by these crypto projects. But the UK isn't immune to this. Actually, like where you have in China this hard crackdown on crypto projects. Um, in the US now, obviously, with the, these big high-profile court dramas that are happening right now, with Sam Bankman-Fried, that's the biggest fraud case in human history that's happening right there. You know, people are really asking regulators to protect them from these scammers not in the uk though there's this very distinct ideological overlap between the way that crypto interests understand the role of the state well they're very anti-state 
and that that kind of overlaps with the very neoliberal mindset of the Conservative Party. A lot of these crypto projects have been entirely funded by the UK government, which have just turned out to be complete scams. Right now, you know, Sam Altman, who's the guy behind ChatGPT and Worldcoin and OpenAI, he wants to make London his kind of base because of the friendly regulatory environment that the, the Conservative Party want to create there. You know, Champagne Zhao, who's currently being indicted by the, well, he's under investigation by the US authorities for market manipulation. And all the worst kind of scammy behaviour is being chucked towards towards that outfit. But they wanted to make London their base. A16Z, so uh, this is Andreessen Horowitz's outfit that they're behind the whole Web3 mindset. They were like the original architects of this idea. They wanted to make London their home as well. The Conservative Party are really trying to coax these people in. Boris Johnson, he's, you know, slipped awkwardly through the revolving door between UK politicians and the crypto industry. The things you have to understand about the crypto industry is that it's such a big political donor. If you take all the money that big pharmaceuticals companies and big weapons companies give to the government, you take all of that money, uh, crypto gives more than that. And that's because it's so dependent on friendly regulatory environment for it to operate. So in the UK, a lot of that money comes through APPGs, another acronym, sorry, all party parliamentary groups. So these are cross party groups of MPs that sit and discuss issues that they're interested in. They're popularly thought of as ways for lobbyists to fund political activities without having to go through the laborious task of registering as a lobbyist. So there's lots of these crypto projects funding these APPGs. And there's five of them in the UK that are actually related to crypto. With a lot of the scaremongering that is encouraging people towards cryptocurrencies, it's based in reality. Like all big conspiracy theories, there is an element of truth in it. But that gets amplified so CBDCs are problematic, you know, they're, they're digital currencies that can be encoded with conditions and there's a lot of surveillance that can occur within the central bank digital currency. Central bank digital currency is essentially just digital cash like what PayPal uses, but it's administered by the state instead. For efficiency reasons, most, if not all, currencies globally are trying to shift towards a CBDC structure and um, a lot of these crypto communities are saying well you can't trust that sort of money bitcoin you can trust because it doesn't have that surveillance aspect to it and it doesn't have the same sort of conditions that can be applied it's got all these other problems to it they don't tell you about but this Mm. is one of the draw cards for them yeah so i suppose you know you've you've outlined throughout the course of the book all of the problems with crypto and blockchain and it's clear that it has no value and it needs to go. So, you know, how do we go about getting rid of it? Yeah, I mean, it's full of myths, this space. But one of the big myths that they say is that because this is just code, you can't get rid of it. That It's immutable and it's always going to be there. And to some extent, that's true. The Bitcoin network it only requires a couple of people to carry on mining crypto taking it back to where it was, for example, where it was just a niche group of basement dwellers that were buying SpongeBob SquarePants stickers off each other, you know, for fun. If there is any such group 
then Bitcoin continues. But that's not problematic, really. I mean, if that were the case, they, it would have a negligible carbon footprint. It would just have a very small group of people that were just doing this thing for fun. And I think that's probably the ideal that we want to be looking towards. I mean, we shouldn't expect to get rid of all of it, you know, but we should ban cryptocurrencies full stop, I think. If you ban something, it doesn't get rid of it. Banning murder doesn't stop all murders. But you should still ban murders because you don't want people doing it. And most people are law-abiding people. And it's the same with crypto. So yeah, we'll always have some remnants of it, but we should still get rid of it because it has such huge social and environmental consequences. The reason that people can use crypto right now is because it's easy to do via an exchange. So people don't have the resources to buy loads of mining computers and mint loads of Bitcoin. It's not like how it used to be where you can mine for crypto using a laptop. It's nearly impossible for you to do that. You need like $1.8 million worth of investment in order to win the Bitcoin bingo once a week. So the only way that people can get Bitcoin and crypto isn't by taking part in the network, but it's actually by buying it through an exchange. So we need to crack down on those exchanges, which is actually quite easy to do. And most of those exchanges are being indicted in the US anyway, because most of them are based in the US, for violations under the Securities and Exchange Commission. In the US, they use a rule of thumb called the Howey Test, so they basically decide whether an investment instrument is a security or it isn't. Um, because cryptocurrency has no inherent value, it's not associated with like a physical asset, it is thought of as a security. So all cryptocurrencies are essentially securities and they should all be registering with the Securities Commission, but none of them have. Probably the easiest way to do it is to just regulate exchanges. But whatever you do to bring the price down will change the environmental and social impacts of these cryptocurrencies. The reason that so many people are still mining for Bitcoin, for example, is because Bitcoin is still worth $20,000 for one Bitcoin. So it's worth them the effort for them trying to do that. So if you can get people to stop buying it, by showing them that it has these huge negative consequences, the price will come down. And when it comes down sufficiently, those miners will just stop doing it because the incentive won't be there. Mm. Yeah, I think we've covered a huge amount. It's been really, really interesting to read the book and talk to you about the book, Peter. Let Them Eat Crypto, the blockchain scam that's ruining the world, uh, is available to pre-order now. Or if you're listening after the 20th of October, then it's already out and you can go ahead and buy it, pick up a copy and get reading. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Chris. That was Peter Housen on Radicals and Conversation. Let Them Eat Crypto, the blockchain scam that's ruining the world, is published this month. That's October 2023. Podcast listeners can get 40% off the book on plutobooks.com. Just add the coupon podcast at the checkout. If you've enjoyed today's show, then please don't forget to subscribe, rate us and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back in a few weeks time with our next episode. So until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>